0: Hi, my name is Logan Walker with the Walk of Life podcast, where I interview people, break down their lives, and get to know what they know. Welcome Don Richter, who is a Supreme Court judge in Pacific and Waukesha County. How you doing, Don?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. You gave me a bit of a promotion though. I'm a superior court judge. Oh. <laughs> Supreme Court. No, I'm not Not there. But uh, um, but no, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me today.
0: Yeah. Um, so we're just going to jump right into it. Um, first question I ask everybody is, what do you want your legacy to be? So how do, people, how do you want people to remember you by?
1: Well, I don't know that I really thought too much about legacy, but uh, if... I guess what I would say is is I would hope that my legacy would be that the world would be a little bit better off having me pass through it. So I guess that would be the legacy I'd hope, that the folks that I've interacted with and my family and whatnot, they've been enriched by my presence to some degree, and that it's just a little bit better off than what it was, would have been without me. So I mean, any, that's about the best legacy I think I could hope for. In
0: any specific ways or anything like that?
1: Well, I I think, you know, in personal relationships, uh, you know, that we we journey together with a a select few folks through this, this world together and the way we support each other, the way we encourage each other and we get through it despite all the, the pitfalls and the suffering together. That it's worth doing. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm having trouble, I guess, doing more than that. I, it's, it's. Yeah. You know, and how, how and you... in
0: life, you know, there's so many ups and downs that I feel like you definitely have to have those relationships with you to, to kind of push through and then grow from them and learn from your experiences. And that's a great takeaway.
1: Yeah, you know, you you get more particular, you know, obviously for my children, I hope that I'm a good father that provides them uh, the ability and the support to to spring forward in their lives. And, you know, as far as my wife's concerned, that I've been a good partner and uh, someone who has shared uh, the ups and downs with love and compassion throughout our lives. And and, uh, so, you know, individually, I guess I would hope that my legacy means different things to different people, but overall in general, just, you know, and the idea that we're a little bit better off having had Don Richter in the world, I guess would be the legacy I'd hope for.
0: And you mentioned kids, which is great. because I, I feel like kids are a reflection of their parents a little bit because they've had such a large impact. So if you, you know, spend the right time and do the right things with your kid, that, that is one great way to, to leave your legacy on the world.
1: Well, absolutely. Well, that's a major progeny. I mean, I mean it, it is your physical mark that, that testifies to the fact that you existed, right? I mean, you, yeah. you leave behind, in some part, you have a piece of yourself um, with your children, and uh, my wife and I, we have eight children, uh, so <laughs> we. Uh,
0: so you got lots of
1: legacies to leave. We well, <laughs> <laughs> For right now, at least, it seems like we're we're leaving a mark on the world. But uh, they've been a, a real source, a source of joy, and uh, and. Uh, rewarding uh, it makes this life you know so much better having gone through and having the children and 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 feeling like there's a purpose um and it's hard to get wrapped up in yourself all the time mm-hmm. when you have these other little lives that you're responsible for and a lot of effort and, and time that you put into them it keeps you i think from being too self-centered taking yourself too seriously all the time yeah and uh, You know so you get a lot out of it yourself but obviously you hope your children uh you know these these new souls that have been brought into creation can can go forth and 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 have meaningful lives as well
0: yeah i I like how you mentioned it's good for yourself as well to grow because kids are watching all the time so (laughs) it's like you got to be doing your best the most you can as often as you know
1: Yeah, I I don't know that you can really truly ever really grow up if you don't have you to some degree children or someone else that you're responsible for. I mean, there's a there's a part of you that once you become responsible for someone else uh, (laughs) that you you just don't get to indulge anymore. Mm -hmm. You're not the only person. You have to think about others. And at least if you do it well, um, I'm obviously uh, uh, not every parent is a good parent. And I, I strive to be a good parent. And a big portion of that is. Is making sure that the decisions you're making are not based on yourself anymore. And so, and I think if you don't have something like that that requires you to get outside of yourself mm-hmm. and have the responsibility, I think that's a big part of what, you know, actual maturing and growing up is about. So yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying that people that don't have kids aren't mature and aren't grown ups, but I mean. But it's
0: a, it's a whole different level.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it, it becomes a lot more real when all of a sudden. You come home from the hospital with you, and your wife, and now this little bundle with you that, you know, if it's going to survive, it's up to you and your wife to yeah. make sure that that happens. And, and that's a scary moment uh, for a new parent, but also just an amazing, you know, the start of an amazing new journey in life. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Did, did, from kid to kid, did you feel more and more confident and did you adjust your, your parenting styles at all as you learned from...
1: Well, every every it's amazing, you know. um, Every kid, uh, you know, same mom, same dad, uh, has been, you know, different experience. So it's it's been interesting to watch and see them grow. Have we changed our parenting? I think we've gotten better at parenting as we've gotten older. Uh, It's gotten easier in that. Uh, when my firstborn, uh, Sam, you know, we were, you know, life was hard mm-hmm. when you're younger and, and you're struggling with resources and, and providing uh, for a family that has its own kind of stress involved there, which can bleed over into relationships, um, you know, arguments with your spouse, you know, st- just coming home and feeling stressed after work and, and sitting down trying to do the bills and that sort of thing and realizing there's not enough to go around <laughs> for everything. Right. So, the, the, you, you know... So there's those stresses that uh, we've been raising kids now for you know 21 plus years. So those stresses have eased as we've gotten obviously more able to uh, provide. As providing for the family has gotten easier, that type of stress has relieved itself, which I think frees up some of your brain power to be more <laughs> concerned about, uh, you know, uh, the more I guess philosophical or, or um, deeper. Uh, aspects of parenting, parenting, not just making sure there's food on the table, but actually that, you know, the child is being emotionally, uh, prepared for adulthood. So, you know, there's definitely some mistakes we made earlier on, uh, with, uh, some of the younger kids that you look back now and you're like, oh, we didn't handle that so well. But I think, you know, as, as anything in life when you look back, uh, you got to give yourself a little bit of grace for understanding where you were at the time. And, uh, and understand that you're doing the best you can. It also helps you appreciate your parents a lot more too for anything that you think your parents didn't do perfectly right. when they were raising you. It, it, it's, uh, I think parenting, of all the things that I've done in my life, it is the hardest, yeah. hardest job that I've ever had, so.
0: So you talked about a little bit with your spouse. Like how, how is the relationship different from pre-children to after-children?
1: Well, I, it goes to maturity again. I think pre children, it's a lot easier to, to be self centered, and that self centered nature of, well, of human nature um, can prevent you from having a true commitment to each other. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a lot easier to be selfish, put blankly, and, and that in a relationship is always a problem. Uh, so having kids is just another dose of realizing that it's not all about you mm-hmm. and you get to step back out of you and, uh, you know, commit to the good of the other, which is, uh, you know, the purpose of, you know, that sacrificial love that we're called to do in marriage, uh, which, uh, you know, love is not an emotion. I mean, it's it's nice to feel good and, and have right. that love and that, mm-hmm. that uh, emotion, but, uh, you know, love is really you know, sacrificing for the other, for the good of the other, not Mm -hmm. for what they can give you or what you get back out of it. But when you truly are loving, you know, it it really is a sacrifice. And, um, so it's a lot easier. You get better at it. I think the more you practice it. So, you know, as two young kids coming together in a new relationship, you know, there's, you kind of wear off the edges from each other a little bit. And, uh, and that gets easier to do as you go on and you throw kids into the mix. Now you're both working together, sacrificing for this new life that's 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 brought into the picture. So that becomes another, I guess, avenue to practice love and get better at it. So
0: when you had kids, did you guys sit down and talk about, you know, how we're going to do this how we're going to balance everything out or is it just like kind of no, an understanding
1: no, no 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 that's that's not how that worked at all I'm not, you know we have eight children i would say none of them are planned in the way that you know some people plan their children we're going to do this at this time this at this time and this at that time no um, we had some general discussions about what we thought life was going to look like when we were uh, getting married and you know we thought at most we'd have i think she wanted three kids or two kids Um, And then I had said, well, I came from a household. We both came from families with three kids. I was a middle child, and so was she. Um, And I said, well, I would like to have even numbers, because it seems like, you know, if you have three, there's always two ganging up against one one way or the other. So, you know, that's – I can remember that conversation. Um, And just thinking, well, I think, well, maybe four is a good number, you know, so – so that, that's that's the discussions we've had as far as the planning, and of course we didn't uh, we didn't meet that plan very well at all.
0: Did you, did you ever like talk about your relationship in the, in the means like how, like after that first kid came out like talked about you and me what we're gonna do or anything like that?
1: Well, I think you definitely have to be on the same page, right? So, um, like I said, parenting is the hardest job that I've ever uh, tried to do, and I cannot fathom how single parents do it mm-hmm. um or if you're not if you don't have that partner i mean it's hard with two of you that are on the same page that are you know working together um to do that on your own it, it that's just you would be exhausted it, 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 well it just it's i don't see how you do it and so my hats off to the folks that you know are struggling with that and doing that um but uh i'm very blessed very happy that uh you know we've been able to stick together on. And you, and you have your arguments and about, okay, well, how do we handle this situation? And you talk through those. And we've tried very hard not to have those arguments in front of the kids. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> I forget which family member it was, um, but, you know, they started talking, we were about to have our first uh, child. And they said, okay, well, now the war begins. The war, you know. You know usually you're talking to family, and like, oh, this is a great, wonderful, happy time. And yeah. also, you know, and then, this, and then this one family is like, no, now the war starts, and it's you against them as far as the kids, and you better not show any weakness in front of yeah. them because they will exploit that. And I, it's a little hyperbolic, but, I, you know, the point of being is that uh, y- you have to be working together because if you're not working together, I, it, I think it all falls apart. So there's obviously some times that we had to have some discussions, but we were um, fortunate enough that from the beginning, we tried really hard not to have any of those disagreements in front of the kids. Mm-hmm. And I think that provided the ability for us to provide um, a united, stable front for the children so they're not worried about mom and dad's relationship and, and that affecting their stability. But also, um, it keeps you know the children from being able to manipulate you to some degree. I mean, look, I mean, children are, inherently selfish and if they think they can get away with something or get something from one parent that they can't get from the other they're going to use that information and Mm -hmm. that's just how children are and uh, so I think that's been a big big help so I don't know if that answers the question but that's I guess yeah we've definitely had conversations about our parenting yeah
0: I'm a big advocate for talking and communication I think that's a, a very key to having a good relationship in all aspects of life, you know, your job, you know, with your staff, with your family, with your partners, with wherever. I think just talking it out and, like you said, being on the same page is so key in having a healthy relationship and growing as, you know, as people. And, you know, I think that's a very good.
1: No, yeah, communication is definitely key. And it's, it's one of those things if you don't know something's wrong, you can't fix it. Yeah, and so, if, and I think a lot of relationships that you know start off, and we've had those arguments where we find ourselves arguing about something silly, and we realize halfway through the argument, you know, I'm not really arguing about this thing. Yeah, I'm really mm-hmm. arguing about something we haven't even talked about that we didn't even know existed because it's just been sitting there, and it's been, uh, you know, bugging me or bugging her to the point that it's kind of spilling over into something that doesn't make any, you know, a silly argument about. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows about what the the dishes or the yeah, you know, yeah. or whatever. You know, it, yeah. it's it's you know, that's that's not why we're having this argument. There's something else going on and trying to get to, you know, what's really the issue and having an open, honest discussion about that. It can be difficult, it can be painful depending on what the issue is. Um but uh I think it's a lot preferable to be doing it that way and deal with it as soon as you can than the fallout from it, not dealing with it. So
0: uh, moving into your childhood just tell me about your childhood were you, were you born, were you raised
1: well I want to acknowledge up front I had an ideal childhood I I mean I had wonderful parents have wonderful parents that uh, loved us loved each other um, I had great grandparents on both sides that uh, had good relationships with um, always felt loved never felt uh, that I was not wanted or supported or, or that sort of thing so and uh, you know growing up as a child you don't realize that that's not what everyone has yeah so as you get older and especially in the work that i do you see more and more and it's just so disturbing to say that that's not as common as it well you thought everyone had that and mm-hmm. that's just not true so i was uh, born in uh, louisiana uh shreveport area Bozier city um and we lived there for about 5 years in a little little subdivision called uh I forget the name of the subdivision but you know it was a fun little neighborhood it was mostly uh little modest little houses you know looking back on it now it's probably 1000 1100 square feet um houses you know, it was uh, there was a big air force base in uh, Shreveport and the oil and gas industry was my dad worked in for Arkla gas and equipment um so uh, you know first five years there uh, had friends in the neighborhood you know rode bikes around mm-hmm. even as a five-year-old i can remember you know riding my bike you know to the neighbor's house a, you know, a few blocks down or whatever and and just had a really really fun childhood my mom was the kind of mom that always uh, had the halloween parties or the birthday parties and that sort of stuff awesome. you know, for all the neighborhood kids uh and then uh you know We would spend a lot of time at my grandparents' house uh, in uh, Gina, Louisiana, which is central Louisiana. Uh, A lot of fishing growing up, uh, hunting, squirrel hunting, duck hunting, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, So just wonderful experiences. Um, Great family, you know, seeing all the cousins and that sort of thing at the family um, gatherings and get-togethers, which was every holiday. Mm -hmm. So just an idyllic. I mean, I miss it terribly. Right. Childhood, and, and and so, I don't know that that type of childhood, in the way that I experienced it, really exists anymore, and that's just really sad to see. Yeah,
0: that's so. definitely a whole new world generation, uh, yeah. with all the technology and everything. It's
1: yeah, no, there was no technology. It's and, crazy. You know, <laughs> yeah, there was definitely none of that. So, um, so yeah, for the first five years there in Louisiana, and then uh, we moved. Uh, the oil kind of dried up in Louisiana, at least for a while. The export, uh, you, know, was, you know, had problems there. So a lot of the gas and stuff was shutting down. Uh, and also that I think the air force base closed and a lot of our friends started moving out and the mm-hmm. neighborhood kind of depleted. And, uh, so dad was, uh, got transferred from Louisiana up to Arkansas and, uh, to work still for ARKL, I believe. And so we moved up to, uh, outside of little rock, a little subdivision called Maumelle. And again, really idyllic, you know, suburb. Uh, we, my mom would walk us or would bike to the school that was the neighborhood school, mm. uh, bike trails to the neighborhood. You know, it was just really great. Just
0: being always outdoors. And... You
1: know, yeah, we, we, we would leave in the day, um, the afternoon to get home from school, whatever, you know, my mom. Thankfully, uh, she's a nurse, um, but was able not to have to work uh, until we were in school. And I had a younger brother, so even for the first couple of years that I was in school, mom was still at home. So when we get home, mom would be there. And uh, I can remember coming home, we'd have a snack ready for us and that kind of stuff. Getting, you know, it's it, it's it sounds almost cliche like this is you know it's not not leave it to Beaver, but that kind of thing. Where yeah. It was like, you know, I mean, she wasn't wearing pearls while she was doing the dishes. <laughs> but, but, you know, it was that kind of environment where mom was there and, and you'd come home and you'd have a snack and then you'd go get on your bike and, you you know, you'd be off in the neighborhood until dinner time, basically. And this is six, seven, eight years old. You, you, nobody, you weren't worried about wondering where the kids were. They were just out, yeah. you know. And at least I didn't feel like we were ever kept tabs on all that much. And so... You know, me and the little our little friend group in the in the neighborhood there, would be riding around the bikes to different people's houses and and doing all that kind of stuff and just exploring and having a good time doing that. So that was up to about the age of eight, and uh, then my mom really wanted to get out on property again. Uh, she kind of had the opportunity growing up in Louisiana and East Texas to to experience not farm life, but a little more rural Mm -hmm. uh, life. Uh, So we ended up moving out to a piece of property, about 60 acres, um, about an hour outside of Little Rock in in a town called El Paso, Arkansas. And then, you know, really got heavy into 4-H, raising animals and that sort of thing. And chickens, we started with chickens, um, which we actually ended up with chickens before we made the move, uh, because we had to buy the chickens in time to get them for the fair. Uh, that year and i can remember my dad came home one day and there were chickens on top of the roof of the <laughs> suburban house in the suburban neighborhood you know we're not supposed to have animals or anything like that in these, <laughs> this, this this neighborhood and he comes home and there's like chickens on the roof because my brother and i had decided well chickens can fly so we're throwing them up <laughs> in the air and you know chickens don't exactly fly <laughs> but, but when you throw them up high enough they can flap their wings enough to like coast over to the roof of the house. (laughs) So I think we had four or five chickens he had to get off the roof of the house that evening. And uh, we were explained that that was not an appropriate way to play with chickens. (laughs) So, you know, so those kind of things where you take these kids that had been raised mostly in the suburbs and and, and just experiencing animals and and farm life for the first time. And so we had a great time doing that. And, uh, you know, it was a little hard leaving our friends that sort of thing, but we had friends come out. It was about an hour away from from where we lived there in in Montmel to El Paso where we moved to, so we still were able to keep relationships and that kind of stuff so so again, I mean just looking back on our childhood, it is really really no complaints whatsoever right yeah so after Arkansas,
0: how, how did you end up in Washington <laughs> I mean, it sounds like sure. you're jumping all over the country here. <laughs>
1: Well, we did a little bit. Um, so I, from El Paso, we, we stayed in El Paso mostly, uh, well, we did, uh, until I graduated high school. And uh, in high school, I was, uh, the El Paso, how do I describe El Paso? It's about the size of La Bam, I guess, a little bit bigger maybe, so it didn't have its own school. I know La Bam used to have its own school, but I don't know that El Paso ever had its own school. So the, the closest town that we had was Bibi, and that's where I went to high school and our grade school in high school. So graduate there, and then off to college at Arkansas State University in Jonesboro, which is about an hour and a half outside of Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, was looking to uh, well, I majored in theater. And okay. So.
0: What, what, what was the dream job going into like right after high school graduated? What, what was it? What was your goal? Uh, well, what
1: did you want to be? I didn't know. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, I. For a long time, I wanted to be a vet, a veterinarian, um, and then I realized I, I was not a good student. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Right. I was uh, I was intelligent, but I was not a good student. Um, they would say I was not living up to my potential, I guess is what <laughs> we really said. Um, I just didn't enjoy schoolwork, you know, right. and uh, I enjoyed it, extracurricular activities. Like, you know, I, I was in the drama club. I, I played in the band, I was, you know, played football and, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I enjoyed all those activities, but I didn't care for school. Um, but what you did at that point was when you graduated high school, you went to college. I mean, that was what you were expected to do. Um, at least it, it seemed like there was a big push around that time that if you didn't go to college, you, you know, you weren't going to have a successful life. Right. Which I don't believe that to be true. But that definitely seemed to be the message that was pumped, at least to my generation in that time. Yeah, was, it's yeah. been pumped
0: pretty hard. And yeah. I think now it's a, it's a bit better about opening people up to trades mm-hmm. and stuff. Like, I, I started hearing them in high school. It sounds like before that they were just – they nobody really knew what, what a trade was and then – all of a sudden, people are talking about him. I'm like, what the heck is a trade?
1: <laughs> right. No, and uh, I had a buddy, a good friend of mine in high school. You know, the rest of us were talking about, okay, we're going to go this college or that college and whatnot. And um, and he's, he wasn't going to go to college. And we just couldn't believe well, What do you mean you're not going to go to college? And what are you going to do? He says, well, I'm going to go work for Coke, uh, driving a, a truck. So you're going to drive a Coke truck? I mean, how are you going to make a living, man? I mean, that's not a real – that's not, you know, how are you going to be successful? And I can remember, what, three years later – coming back and, and sitting around and, and talking and come to find out, he had, yeah, he'd been driving a Coke truck all right, but then he moved up in the company to where he was running a distribution center or something, he was making six figures, you know, three, four years out of high school, yeah back in the, you know, late 90s. Oh, wow. And uh, <laughs> and here we were, broke, <laughs> and, you know, no, uh, no money and no skills really to speak of because we're, you know, three years into college, which – you know a theater degree qualifies you to be a waiter and uh <laughs> it just it just is funny to me thinking about you know how backwards we had that in our mindset back then um at least i, I can definitely vouch it was in it was my mindset that you know i, I definitely thought oh you if you had if you're going to be successful you have to go to college and uh so i did and uh, spent. I had a good time in college. In fact, I had such a good time, they asked me not to come back after the first year and a half. <laughs> so uh, I uh, went to college on a full scholarship because even though I wasn't a very good student, I was a pretty good test taker. So on the ACT, I did well enough to get a full ride off or scholarship to oh, Arkansas wow. State University. And then I go there and proceed to completely blow it. And uh, just because, man, now I don't even have parents, you know, riding me to get to class and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, you know, eight o'clock classes were hard, you know, getting up <laughs> four in the morning. And especially if you were out, you know, having too much fun until, you know, midnight, one o'clock the night before. Uh, so I think I had a like a 1. 1.8, 1. 1.6 GPA after my first year and a half. And I was at home for Christmas that year. And the your transcripts come in the mail from that uh, semester on a semester system. I can remember they'd be in for Christmas break and getting the grades, and I knew I was on academic probation, but I thought I had it in the bag because I had good grades last time I checked, and then I opened up, in a class that I thought I had a B in, I actually got an F in, and... A little bit of a switch. <laughs> it was a switch, because of this thing called the attendance policy. Uh- <laughs> Well, this had never really been enforced before in any of these other classes that I'd been in because yeah. they were big you know, lecture hall classes. We are in kind of a stadium seating and you're in there with a couple hundred people. But this was a smaller class and it was actually in my major, which I think is what triggered it. It was a, I think, intro to you know, theater history or something like that. And I had a solid B in it. And I said, oh, great, okay, I got high enough GPA. I'll be off academic suspension. Well, I get an F in it because the professor i think was really making a point to me that no the rules are the rules and especially this is your major you're not showing up to class you violated the policy here's your f and uh that was a harsh lesson but it was a needed lesson quite frankly for me and uh so i had to call that professor i was like what happened you know you i got failed you failed me and and now i'm not gonna be able they they're, they're saying i can't come back to school now and uh, you know, of course, here I am having this conversation at Christmas with my family. Right. You know, so I can remember he told me, all right, well, first off, I didn't fail you. You failed yourself. Uh, next is, if you really want to come back to school, I didn't realize that you were, you know, this was going to suspend you. I'm not changing the grade. It's an F. But what I will do is, if you come up here, I think it was like the next day, um, the school faculty would still be in session but you know classes weren't right. uh, he said you come up here tomorrow and uh, I'll take you over to the dean and we'll have a conversation about whether or not we can get you another chance so I went up there I met with him you know ate my humble pie whatever you want to call it we went over to the dean for the college and he supported a application to uh a waiver of the suspension or something—I forget what it was called. But anyway, I got another chance, and uh, from that point on, I actually graduated. I think with a three point two or three point three. Oh, so kind know. of that kind of. So that yeah. Oh you. no, it was it was. Oh, this is real. This is not just fun and games anymore. Mm-hmm. And that really did. And of course, that professor was the head of the theater department, so I was the example that he held up to all the underclassmen every right. year, especially if I was retaking that class that I failed. Um, you know, he would uh, he, relish, you know, and, you know, if you don't think being here is important, ask Mr. Richter how that worked out, or, you know, that sort of thing. And so, you, you know, it was, a, it was a harsh lesson to have to learn, but it was a lesson that, you know, I'm glad I learned it then and not later in life, because I think those kind of lessons get harder and harder the later in life you learn them right so but anyway so that gets me through you know i graduate i thought i was going to go to master's uh, school i was going to to teach i wanted to teach on the college level for theater because you know if you don't want to wait tables what do you do you teach um, as far as with a theater degree Um, and i had applied for and for grad schools and i was getting the rejection letters one by one, because I'd only applied to the top 10 schools, because I thought, well, if I don't get into the top 10, it's not worth going. So, one by one, I was getting the rejection letters, and part of the application process for all these schools was to um, do an audition, and the places they do the auditions, one of the places was Chicago, which is the closest place to us. So, I'd gone up there and stayed in Chicago for a while to do that audition, and really enjoyed Chicago. So, I was talking to Tina we were married at this point already. And I said, well, if, if, uh, if I don't get into any of these grad schools, why don't we just go to Chicago? It's not as cliche as going to New York or going to LA, mm-hmm. you know, try to make it in, in theater or whatever, yeah. <laughs> but, they, but they've got a good theater scene there. And, uh, I think it would be, you know, kind of fun to experience that. And so I got the last two rejection letters on the same day and, uh, so we, that's what we did we packed up we moved to chicago and enjoyed that experience and then eventually i realized uh, you know that the day jobs that i had to support you know the acting dream that i was uh, that i had uh, were insufficient so i went back to school for computer programming did some computer programming through sears uh, and roebuck the, the headquarters there for a while and then that was around y2k and i don't know you're probably too young to remember y2k but um there was a big push at that time, for programmers, for all this code that had been written, they were they were thought, oh, the, all the banking systems are going to shut down because of the, the not having enough digits in the date. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it turned out to be a big nothing. But um, there was a lot of comp- uh, programmers that were hired around that time to, to work on these legacy systems. And when I was first hired at Sears as a programmer, there were 2,000 of us at the headquarters. Holy smokes. Just computer programmers, Right. And by the time I left, after the industry just tanked, um, they're doing a lot of offshoring. A lot of uh, contractors are coming in from India, that sort of thing. Because uh, I mean, the smart guys from India—they spoke really good English, and they would work, you know, for the cost of a third of an American programmer. Right. Uh, so, and it's, you know, business sense was too—the business case was too strong, mm-hmm. uh, and I could see the kind of the writing on the wall. And sure enough, by the time I left, there were fewer than eight hundred of us. Uh, at the program, still programming at Sears. And so I would looked at what, what I'm gonna do with the rest of my life. You know, I've kind of done the acting thing a little bit, you know, and then I have thought computer programming was gonna be my life. And so I'd always had kind of a an idea that maybe I'd like to do law enforcement. So at first I thought I was gonna be a Chicago police officer. And I went through the, the steps, I went through the testing and the physicals and all that kind of stuff to get onto the force and uh the more and more i got into it the more and more i was like i don't think this is a good fit right so i also had some buddies that were lawyers at the time and they always seemed to have the best stories at all the parties and everything the things that happened so that was very intriguing to me so i started thinking about law school meanwhile my parents had moved my dad uh, had finished working in industry he went back got his uh, phd And uh, to teach. So he's a professor at the time, was a professor at Eastern Washington University there in Cheney. So when I started looking for law schools to go to, uh, my wife was like, well, we've, we've got one kid, another one's on the way. And if you're going to quit your job and go to school again, I want to be closer either to my family or your family for the support. And that made sense. And applying for law schools yeah, around, makes... you know, that area and that sort of thing. Gonzaga made the best deal, and uh, made the most sense for us. So that's where I ended up going to law school. So that's how I got. That was a long answer to your question of how I got <laughs> to, to Washington. But that, you know, as about as quick as I can make it is how I got to Washington.
0: One thing really cool about your story is how you tried all of these different things and paid attention to other people and was able to learn from them. It was like now i found my passion you know it's not always a straight road and you don't always find what you want to do right off the bat you know that's (laughs) oh no 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 no.
1: i i've had lots of different jobs i mean i i've had a job since i was age of 14. my first very first job was working at the back end of a cell barn running running stock you know cattle and and hogs and stuff uh, out of the cell barn and i worked at mcdonald's fast food for a number of years the best job i ever had Except for the one I've got now, <laughs> that's what you always want to say, right? No, yeah. The job I have now is the best job. But the uh, the best job other than that that I ever had is I actually drove horse carriages in Chicago, and uh, that was a lot of fun. You know, driving people horse carriages. Yeah. So tourists would come. You know, you you they're happy. It's just you and your horse out there on the street. You, you know, showing the sights as you're driving your horse around Chicago. It was it was a lot of fun. So that was one of the more unique jobs that I had. Also,
0: it <laughs> is so tell me about law school I want, sure
1: so you know law school is an intense thing and uh, but it really was kind of made for me or at least I was made for law school uh, law school is it's an intense but how do I put this there's one test in each class for the year, and that's your grade, and that's I mean that's it. So one test. One test. At least that's how it used to be, and I think most, most law schools, almost every law school at the time was the same. So everything from Harvard to Gonzaga, you know, down to the you know whatever university law school there is, the first year is pretty standard. They have a set number of of uh, the, the subject classes you're supposed to learn, like contracts, crim law, torts. Uh, that sort of thing. So everybody is taking those same classes, but you don't know how you're doing, right? You're in the you're in class. You get yeah. no feedback because you're not getting you're not grades. doing assignments or anything, right? There's no assignments. So um, is it just
0: nose down in the books all year long?
1: It it is. It's and you know. But here's the deal: a lot of these guys had gone straight through. I already had that break where I worked, mm-hmm. you know, in quote unquote the real world. Um, so I approached law school pretty much like I did my job. And if I put 40 hours into it, you know, a week, you know, it's doable. Yeah. But some guys that, you know, come straight through undergrad, and straight into law school, and a lot of these people, you're, you're now dealing with people that super intelligent, most of them, yeah. you know, but also used to being at the top of their class, used to getting that affirmation that, yeah, I'm really smart. For the first time in their life, they're coming up against – you know, things where they're not succeeding um, and they're not getting that feedback. So there's a mental game that really goes on in law school too. Yeah, that's... that's... And it's, uh, it's enforced, at least in my time, it was enforced uh, what I call a bell curve. So if you've never experienced that, what that means is, is on that one test, there's a 100 of you that are taking that test, let's say. There will be two A's, but there will also be two F's. It's not a pass fail. Oh,
0: so you're competing with the whole class. You're competing class. against the class. Oh wow!
1: So you may there may be only ten points difference between if it was an actual numeric test, which they're not usually. It's essay. But let's say there would you know everyone would have scored on a on a points test. They would have all had an A or B because they're only spread out by about you know ten points. That's not how that you don't get a B because you you learned the material. It's how well you learned it compared to other students. <sighs> That's a lot of pressure. Right. So you'll have, you know, they'll have a set number of how many A's you're going to have for that class. They'll have a set number of B's. The vast majority of you will get C's, and then there'll be a set number of D's, and then there'll be a couple of F's. So they will fail a couple of people out of each class.
0: Yeah. Regardless of
1: how well they actually did, it's just how well they did compared to everyone else, um, which you can imagine creates all kinds of incentives to not work well with others. So it's almost like we're being, we're being schooled. Like pinned
0: on each other in the class. Yeah, we're, wow. we're being
1: schooled how to be lawyers and not really be play well with others from the yeah. beginning of law school. <laughs> um, but uh, so that kind of environment is very stressful. It can, it can you know, drive you to do things, you know, the, there's old stories about not, not anymore, but used to, and for my first year, you could not use any electronic resources. No, There was no Google. You couldn't use LexisNexis or Westlaw. You had to go through the books, which means to get the right answer, you'd have, you'd have to know how to navigate the way you research law and, and, the, and the shepherdizing and, and that sort of thing, but also to get the right answer, you'd have to find it in the book. Well, there's been stories, I don't think this ever happened in my law school, but uh, where you know, some kids would find that right answer or whatever, kids, students, and then they'd rip the page out of the book. Because again, oh, so some, nobody it's not else how well you did, it's how well you did compared to everyone else. And if, if everyone else can't get the right answer because the page isn't there anymore. So I mean, that's one of the, you know, whether or not that actually ever happened anywhere, I understand the motivation that would drive that decision. Okay but uh so yeah it's an intense but but what i loved about law school too is the way you you learn the law is you read stories and the stories are the cases Mm -hmm. so you read all these cases you get the holdings you get the rulings from the judge and they're little stories that you read and i love reading stories Mm -hmm. um and that's a good way to look
0: at it i feel like that's
1: yeah so it really is i mean they're stories with consequences and they're real life stories but they are little stories and uh, i really enjoyed that aspect of it um Yes, it was stressful, but I also liked you know, one test a year again because I didn't mm-hmm. like, <laughs> yeah. know, I didn't like necessarily a lot of schoolwork. Um, but I loved to read and uh, and getting the right answer, figuring it out is you know it's kind of a fun you know logic game and puzzle that you, you go through. And so I you know I did pretty well in law school, and uh, and was fortunate enough to to graduate with honors and. Uh, oh, so you you were a couple
0: career. A's up there at the top.
1: There were a couple of classes that I, what they called at the time, it's called uh, Cali, uh, the highest grade in the class. Wow. Um, so it was a big deal, and it's something you put on your resume and that sort of thing. It used to also be called an Amjur, which it used to be who sponsored the award. But gotcha. In each class, the top grade got the Amjur award or the the Cali. So there were a couple of classes that I was fortunate enough to do that in and uh, and that sort of thing. But, you know. Not consistently enough to graduate, you know, valedictorian or anything like that. But you know, it's it's a nice little fun thing to to do. Yeah. And uh, so it was, and it, and it helped, you know, my career out later on with, uh, uh, you know, having just a, a better resume, I think, that at least gets you in the door to have those conversations. How
0: did you kind of deal with the the stress and the pressure? Was there any, like, relief valve, something you would do, or is it just, like, family times so that would get away?
1: Well, so we had two children at the time, and uh, so that was a big uh, relief valve and because and I, I made the, the commitment that I would leave school at school. So when I would come home... I wasn't bringing books and stuff home. If I was studying, I was still at the library. Oh, but again, you, you know, I, I committed myself to treat it like a job, which means if my first class wasn't until 10 o'clock, I was still at the library at 8 o'clock, and I'd be studying. And then I'd do my class. You usually have about three classes a day, but I would be there from 8 to 5, 8 to 6, or whatever, every day. Mm-hmm. And that way, when I came home, you know, I could put it aside. I could, think, I could focus on, you know, the family to, the, to, to a degree. Um, but there was a lot of stress involved, but you know, it wasn't the same kind of stress that I'd had before working at a job that I didn't really care for worrying about whether or not I was going to get fired that day, right. or laid off, you know, that's a different kind of stress. So, and at the time I was there too, I had a lot of buddies, uh, in law school that were just coming back from Iraq and everything. Um, and uh, we're using the GI Bill and that kind of stuff. And you see what they went through and, and the stress, you know, th- it was nothing to them. I mean, I got a great friend. He's actually the godfather of a couple of my kids. Uh, he's a Marine and we did a case together when we were first out of law school. And uh, when I'm nervous, we're going to federal court in uh, the Northern District of Illinois, which is in, uh, in Rockford, Illinois. We had to fly out there. Here we are like six months out of law school, out of passing the bar. And we're we're flying out there to do a deposition and do a settlement conference, and I just can't believe it. You know, I'm getting on a plane to go do lawyer stuff. Yeah, um, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, and we end up out there, and I'm, I can remember having a conversation with him about, man, aren't you aren't you scared or nervous at all about this? Like nobody's shooting at us, man. What are we scared about? <laughs> <laughs> that's you know? a great way
0: to put it in perspective, too. It, it is. And
1: so when you, when you're surrounded by guys like that, and good group of guys and uh, and gals, I should say. And uh, and then also you have a family at home that kind of helps level set things a little bit for you too. I think that I think it was actually I know a lot of my friends thought man it'd be hard to do law school. It's yeah, but even harder to do it with kids and a family. I'm like I kind of think the opposite. I think it really was a supportive mechanism for me having that family uh, that I could come home to and kind of realize that no, this is this is what real life is about and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, and not get caught up with some of the things that were going on in law school.
0: Yeah, and so, when you when you separate. You know, your school from your, your your family and your home. I think that is a great, great way to do it, you know. Treat it like a job. You're at the school for eight hours and then you're, you're home and you're checked out and you're with your family. That, yep. that's, that's a great way to approach it, I think. Sure. I never even thought about that.
1: <laughs> well, for me, it was, and, you know, because it would be undoable. Because, I mean, if you try to come home, you're trying to work on something, your kid would be interrupting you the whole time. All you're going to do is get frustrated. You're going to snap at the kid, and that's not going to be good for your relationship with your child who's just want to, you know, be with dad or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was, you know, of all the dumb things I've done, at least I was smart enough at that point to, to realize that don't come home. And force your kid to be in law school. Right. Your, oh, kid, yeah. your kid's not going through law school, you know, you are. So when you're home, be home. When it's time to work, work. And I think that was a big, big help for us going through law school.
0: So where, did you go straight to being a judge or what was the. the first no, no, step no, no. no.
1: <laughs> I uh, uh, focused mostly on when I came out of So during law school, you do these things called uh, internships or what I call as a a rule nine internship, where you get a limited license to practice law. And I had always been interested in criminal law. So I had focused most of my internships and I I went to law school thinking I was gonna be a prosecutor for sure. I was gonna be a prosecutor. And uh, so I did an internship with the Spokane County uh, prosecutor's office. And I also did an internship with a defense attorney because at the time I figured, well, even though I don't really like defense attorneys or want to be a defense attorney i, I should at least get a perspective from their side absolutely you know? that's it yeah and um uh, and, and of course most people before you go to law school that's what you think the law is it's criminal law you think you know it's mm-hmm. all you, you know was it boston legal or whatever the the tv shows where the what is that the don't don't what is that one called uh
0: like the law and order?
1: Or? Law and order, that's yeah. it, right? Yeah, where it's half is the police and, and half, yeah. is the, half is the trial, right? Yeah, so that's what you think the law is. Yeah. That is such a tiny proportion of what the law is. And uh, so going to law school is almost like going back to high school or going back to undergrad where you, where you have to major in what you're going to study because after your first year and a half, two years, that last year is really your your choices are going are to be a corporate lawyer or you're a contracts or a transactional lawyer or going to be what they call a proctor and admiralty You're going to specialize in like you know law of the high seas and international law are you going to are you going to do tort law you know for personal injury you're going to do medical malpractice i mean so those choices well, you make invited. at law school kind of push you into what kind of job you're going to do and i had always just really been fascinated and wanted to stay in criminal law so that's where my internships went uh so When I graduated law school, I had a job with a a defense firm, because at the time the prosecutor's office was not hiring, and my wife at this time was going to Eastern Washington University to get her master's in uh, occupational therapy, so we were place bound, so I couldn't just pick up and move and go somewhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was uh, looking for a job, and the prosecutor's office was not hiring, And they're the only job in town for prosecutors, you know, as far you don't have private prosecutors. So I said, okay, well, I guess I'll be a criminal, uh, start, you know, looking for a job in criminal defense. And I found one, Um, and I worked for a guy that let's just say was on the shadier side of things. Um, And I started working for him right after I graduated, but I hadn't passed the bar yet. So I'm still practicing under a limited license to practice. And there's restrictions on what you can do um, for that, uh, right. that, that, that practice, that limited uh, practice. And he was in a bind, and he told me basically to go to this court and do something that I knew that I could not do under my limited uh, license to practice. And he said, well, just don't tell them. It's like, man, I'm not going to get disbarred before I even get my bar card. I'm waiting. I've I've taken the bar at this point. I'm waiting for my results. And here is my boss, you know, telling me to basically lie to the court, which is one of the things that will get you disbarred. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, especially fresh out of the gate, you know, you're the kind of person they would want to make an example of. Like, Yeah, this is not how you, you're not going to practice like this uh, by lying to the court. And so we parted ways. The problem with that is, is that, you know, fresh out of law school, you know, you can't go around bad-mouthing your employer as you're getting—trying to interview for new jobs. So I had several interviews, and, of course, the first question is, is, well, you've only been at this job for, you know, four and a half, five months. Why are you out looking for another job? That's a red flag to most people, mm-hmm. especially in the, in the, the uh, legal uh, industry. So I just—I have to say—I was trying to be, you know, diplomatic about it. I'd say things like, well, you know, we just had a difference of how we— you practice law and that sort of thing, and so I, that made it very difficult to find a subsequent job. So I ended up having to, well, not having to, but I ended up hanging out in my own shingle and starting a private law practice. Here I was, I mean, just you know, uh, seven months out of law school, and I'm trying to start mm. a, a private practice. And and I, but I had some great folks. It's a good legal community. The um, so folks, folks that I had worked with that. Uh, were very kind to me and very good to me and, and helped me along. And for seven years, I ran a private law practice in uh, Spokane, uh, mostly doing criminal defense, but did some family law and some personal injury and kind of branched out trying to find anything that would pay the bills. Right. So that's what I started out doing. And uh, then 07, you know, you know the uh, downturn in 08, 09 really came in. And as a criminal defense attorney, when people don't have money they still get a free attorney from the public defender's office so you're competing with a free attorney that makes it hard to run a business yeah
0: yeah, and
1: so that kind of dried up so I was looking for a way to support the family and started looking for uh, for opportunities and a job in Pacific County came up for prosecuting attorney and it paid decent and I'd always wanted to live kind of on the coast you know, have never lived close to an ocean before, so I thought that would be, you know, fun. But also, um, we were kind of tired of living in a bigger town, and Spokane's a decent-sized city. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not not near as big as Chicago was, but, you know, we were kind of at this point, or we've got, well, we had four children at this point? Uh, five? No, we had five. And uh, we're looking to, to have more of that experience that I remember growing up with. Yeah. You know, you want that same kind of that same kind of thing for my kids. And I came out here, did the interview, fell in love with the area. It reminded me a lot of uh, growing up in rural Arkansas um, as far as, you know, the size town, the location. It was beautiful and it was about an hour away from Olympia and that sort of thing. If I wanted to do something bigger, yeah. which is like how I grew up in Arkansas. We were about an hour from Little Rock. So it, it really made a lot of sense to us. And, uh, so we decided to make the move and been very, very happy, but I came out here to be a prosecutor and stayed in the prosecutor's office, I think for five years. And then when judge, uh, Gales retired, I put in for the appointment uh, with the governor's office and was appointed and then have been subsequently through two elections. And, and that's how I became judge. So it was a
0: long road.
1: Yeah. No, typically you don't just jump into being a judge. I mean, yeah. You know, I would say, uh, you know, Usually, you're going to at least have 10 years of experience before you sit on a bench somewhere. Right. Maybe a little bit less to sit on a, on a district court or lower court bench, but to become a superior court judge, you're, you're, most people are going to be at least 10 years into the field before, you know, they, and usually significantly longer before they become a judge.
0: How does seeing um, or like using your experience from a prosecutor or in the defensive attorney affect how you work as a judge?
1: Well, I think it makes, it makes me appreciate the roles that everyone plays better because I've done those roles. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me uh, understand the difficulties each one of those positions are facing. Um, uh, being a prosecutor, you have to be organized. You have to, because you have to build the case. You, you have to have it all. It, it's, it's a small miracle that anything ever makes it to trial with all the moving parts that are going on <laughs> and, and what you yeah. do as a prosecutor to build that case the coordination and then getting it to trial. So on the other hand, the defense attorney, you know, you've, you've gotta be able to react, you, you have to be able to really analyze things very well and you gotta be creative, I think. You know, you can be, you can be a non-creative prosecutor and be successful. I don't think you can be a non-creative defense attorney and be successful, I mean, because you, you, it's just a different type of job. Um, You know, the prosecutor, you you have to follow the recipe. You got to be good. I mean, good prosecutors are also creative in the way they follow that recipe. Mm -hmm. You know, as far as this is what I have to prove. This is the charge. This is the law. And then, you you know, you have to follow the steps to do that. As a defense attorney, every case is a a brand new clean slate. There is no, you know, you have to search out and find what you're, you got to build a recipe for that case every time, depending on what the facts are and what the law that's being applied to that case is is i guess how i would describe it so they are different skill sets so i appreciate that those different skill sets are needed for those positions having you know worked with people individually as a defense attorney you know i also understand the difficulties that people that are facing when they're coming to court who are charged with a crime and how stressful that is and um, and you know what families are going through and all that so it, it provides a little bit of a you know glimpse into what that's like and then uh, you know appreciation for the bigger roles that those individuals play in the system of our justice which it it wouldn't function without Mm -hmm. those roles so I mean I think it was very important for me to have that experience on both Um, I enjoyed doing both Um, at times I didn't enjoy either one you know, it's not always an enjoyable experience, Yeah, well,
0: it's any job as well. You know, there's going to be things that you like and sure. things that you uh, not going to uh, like. But. Yeah. So no, it,
1: it definitely comes in handy as a judge. Cause when I'm sitting there hearing, you know, the attorney's saying, I, I also, I'm also hearing what they're not saying and that, you know, so I come, <laughs> it, right. it makes it easier to kind of, I guess, understand what's really going on in a case from both perspectives and, and helps me make a decision that, uh, Moves the case forward in the way that's appropriate. Sometimes, so did
0: you, when you were a defense attorney, you have, ever have any um, like cases where it's like, I uh, know this, what this guy what he did, and it was like, how do you like so you know how do I defend him if I'm not lined up, you know, with my views of how it is?
1: So, yes. That, that comes up every defense attorney has that experience and every defense attorney probably if you're being honest with you would say that there are t- times that you know some cases they don't mind losing not that they didn't try their hardest not that they wouldn't fight their hardest for their client but at the end of the day they don't feel bad about the result even if it means that they're that they're, they lost mm-hmm. the case um so uh, what you're doing at that point and this is a big part of law school and the ethics that they teach you in law school is understanding that your role is not to do what you think is right in a case all the time your role is to do what the law requires and your role is also to defend or Advance your client's position within the limits of the law, Mm -hmm.
0: right?
1: But you know, the goal of the and the the goal of litigation is up to the client. In other words, and and I would think I had more problem with this in family law cases than I did in criminal law. But you can advise, you dictate the strategy. And you can make sure that you know that what you're doing is legal, but as far as what the ultimate goal of that litigation is, that's up to the client, mm-hmm. and you don't get to override. You're representing your client, not the other way around. Yeah. Um, so as as an in a defense attorney, you're also playing a role in a system that has to, the way it's set up, that if that defendant must be represented to ensure that justice for everyone is available so in an individual case if I know that the officers violated the fourth amendment through a search or seizure problem and I know that I can suppress a piece of evidence even though I know my client is guilty of whatever the crime is but I know that you know I can suppress this piece of evidence without that piece of evidence they can't convict my client it's my duty to make sure that piece of evidence is suppressed according to the law regardless of the outcome of the case.
0: Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that was...
1: So, okay, that makes you know, sense. that's... Because if I don't do that, the police are using illegal means to, to build a case against a citizen, right? Mm-hmm. And that can be... That, that's dangerous ground to go down. Right. That's why those things exist. It's, it's why we have... The protections we have—it's why you're not forced to testify against yourself. You know, you have a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Um, it's it's those rights that are being protected by the defense attorneys in a lot of cases, even though in the particular case, it may deliver a result that to the vast of the you know majority of the public would seem unjust. Right, but but unfortunately, we're you know it's not about as much about an individual case at that point as it is to protecting the system and the integrity of justice to make sure it's still available for all of us. Um, so I mean, and that's, is it uncomfortable at times? Absolutely. Is it hard to, some Some attorneys can't do that. And that's why they're not defense attorneys. Right. Um, and, but understanding the role that defense attorneys play and sometimes the struggles they go through to, to perform that role, I think, is something that needs to be respected and understood. And, and I wish it was better understood by people. Right. So.
0: Well, I definitely have an understanding now. I had I had no idea uh, how that worked or how you you know kind of divide the two and separate them. But it it I guess if you approach it like a true job and you're upholding you know the Constitution pretty much, and so.
1: Right. Well, we're not there, you know, especially as a judge. I'm not there to do what I want in a case. I have to follow the law. And if mm-hmm. I stop following the law, then I'm not wearing a robe. I'm wearing a crown. I'm making myself a king instead of a judge. Which uh, is like the opposite of what our country is founded on. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and the same thing trickles down to the different roles. The prosecutor also has rules to follow by. and They don't always, they're not always able to do what they want in a case based on their requirements and their, their, uh, uh, the ethical requirements of their role. And the same thing with the te- defense attorney. So it's, you know, just because you see an attorney doing something doesn't mean that that attorney personally believes that or is personally happy about the outcome or personally happy about what he's doing or she's doing. Uh, same thing with a judge. Because a judge rules a certain way doesn't mean that the judge is happy with the outcome. Right. Uh, but if they're a good judge, then they're going to do the right thing, and the yeah. right thing is meaning following the law. Yeah, separating
0: and, their opinions and... Absolutely. How do, how do how do you do that? Uh, is there any like you just like this is this like you you know like your ethics says one thing, but the the law says this. You just gotta
1: push it back and follow the law. Well, I think a large part of that is making sure you remember what your job is and what you're doing in your job. Um, and it's, unfortunately, it's it's getting blurred a lot. And it's one of the big tragedies of our time. I think is, is the way the judiciary is being politicized and we're having these discussions about someone's personal religious uh, beliefs uh, when we're vetting them to sit on the bench or their you know, political beliefs for that matter. You know, and I understand why it's happening, but we've allowed ourselves to get into this trap where we believe that judges are political animals. And I understand that I'm, I'm you know, to one degree, I understand that I am in an elected position, so yes, there's. I mean, the, yeah. in there, the purest a of sense of it, there's yeah. there's politics there. As yeah. far as you know, I'm I'm elected, so I, I guess that okay. There's politics, but a judge is not asked to say what he thinks the law should be or what he wants it to be. The judge is there to say what the law is. So just like looking at this table, I may wish it was a green table, you know, boy, I, you know. It, it should be a green table. But you're not asking me what I think the table should be or what it is. You're asking me what color is the table. It was brown. Well, that doesn't require me to do any theological or philosophical you know, introspection. It's simply the analysis that you would do under the law and applying that to the facts in a case Understanding the the history of the law, that the case law that's interpreted that law before, so what you're looking for are good legal minds that are willing to do that logical and deliberate exercise in every case. That's what you should be vetting a judge for. You know this this idea where we're putting judges up and we're asking them questions about you know their their political or their religious beliefs and and that sort of thing, and because we think. Um,
0: That has a factor.
1: That that has a factor. Look, everybody has their personal beliefs. Everybody has their religion. Everybody has, even if they think they don't have a religion, they've got a religion. Mm -hmm. It it may not be one that has a name that, 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 you know, we, we traditionally think of a religion. Everyone has those things. The whole point is, is when you put on that robe, you have to leave that aside and focus on what the question is, which is what is the law? What does the law say? If the law says that... Um, if the law says that a person, uh, will, you know, must be evicted because the landlord's entitled to their home uh, to the property that, that they're leasing out. And yes, it's a horrible sob story that this person is going to be removed from the home that they've lived in for maybe a, a number of years, but they, but the law requires this result, then you don't, you're not there to decide whether or not that's a just result necessarily. You're there to apply the law mm-hmm. now. Within some strictures, you get into the constitutional you know, aspects of things, and that's usually for more like you know, superior excuse me, Supreme Court judges or justices or appellate court justices. Uh, but you know, for the most part, you know, those questions, and it's in our code of judicial conduct, you know, and it's in everything that I read to the jury, all the jury instructions that I read when a jury comes to hear a case, I tell them, you, you are now officers of this court. You must base your decisions on the facts and the law given to you, not on personal belief, prejudice, or bias. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing for the judge, even doubly so. so
0: yeah, even a even mm-hmm. yeah, a little more pressure to as being the, the guy in the robe. <laughs> um, you know, it's
1: I didn't realize how much the weight would be as 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 the person actually making a decision. You know, having been in front of judges and and uh, advocating for a side, I didn't appreciate the weight of actually having to make the decision, and sometimes that can be very heavy.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine. You know, because you're you're kind of choosing the the fate of the person on the stand. You know, not really, because you know they put themselves there. But
1: correct. I mean, depending on I mean, people come to you with their disputes and their problems, and it's like you didn't create the problem, you didn't cause it. And you know, a lot of times people have got themselves into positions in different disputes. There is no good answer, so no matter what you do, it's going to be a tragedy. And it's, you know, and again, you're not there to to say what you wish the law is. You're there to apply the law fairly, mm-hmm. so everyone has equal access to that justice. And you know, unfortunately, there's just a lot of problems that the law is not very good at solving.
0: Is there any ways that you would like to change that or fix that, or if if you could, in a
1: sense? Um, If there was, I wouldn't be a judge. I'd be a a legislature. (laughs) So when I get to the point where I think that I want to change something or change the law or advocate, I have the same power you do, and that is I have one vote. I get to vote for the changes that I want to see happen. If I want to do more than that, then it's time for me to step off the bench and it's time for me to become some sort of – you know advocate or or legislature or you know that sort of thing but uh i don't get to do that from the bench
0: right um so what challenges do you have to overcome being a judge in a, in a small town
1: well i mean obviously in a small town you, you you tend to at least know most of the folks yeah that are in front of you and uh, it's something that judges from bigger jurisdictions don't, you know, they don't, you're in the ether, right? As a, in a bigger city, you're, you, you know, people don't know you, they don't know your kids, they yeah. don't know where you live, they don't know where your kids go to school. Um, so there's, so there's that kind of aspect of it, that kind of challenge. I've never really, I mean, I've had some death threats and things like that, but I've never, so far it's not been to the point where I've really been worried, you know, been, been worried. Um, but I mean, so from that aspect, you know, it, that's fine. But from from more of, of just the, you, you get to, unfortunately, you become intimately aware with problems, the private problems of people that are in your community. You know, so you you see the struggles that folks are going through, and you can't detach yourself from that as you would if you were in a bigger place, because you know, oh, that's so and so who who, you know, their their daughter is my daughter's friend or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, and things like that. And there was, you know, sometimes you have conversations with your kids. Yes, I know everybody on the team got invited to go to a birthday party, but you, you have to understand that that person's upset with Dad because of what Dad did. It's not about you, honey. In that it's not just that, you know, the friends don't like you anymore. It's just it's Dad. It's not, you know, the kids being mean to you. It's, Are they able you know,
0: to understand that?
1: You know, you hope. Yeah, As a that's, kid, just, it's that's hard such to, a tough
0: situation. Yeah, I
1: mean, and, and not that that's happened very much, but there's been a couple of times where things are like, okay, this is, yes, I know, honey, that, you know, this is not, it hurts when you're the only one who doesn't get invited to go somewhere mm-hmm. or, or that sort of thing, but, you know, that's not because of you, it, it is really because of of me yeah which, and, it, which
0: is sad you know that, that someone is willing to
1: well it is but it's understandable i mean you know i get it, it, it you try to understand but you know it, it's tough when when things like that affect your kids going to so say you're
0: much more understanding than i am
1: well it's yeah. well you, you almost have to be or you drive yourself nuts but right. you know but for the like i said we live in a great community that's really not happened that much so there's that aspect that's not always pleasant, but, you know, and, and honestly, <laughs> one of the hardest things is more people know you than you know them. So yeah. you see a lot of people and when you're out and about, you recognize people, but you're not quite sure where <laughs> from, you know, and, uh, and unfortunately I've, i I'm horrible at it anyway, but, uh, you know, so, so, so people will say something to you and you'll be like, I'm not, oh yeah, I know. you're very familiar and. You're trying to remember how you know them and you're trying to, oh, is it from a case or is it just, you know, is it from something else that's not even to do with the court? Right. So there's that kind of thing. Um, and uh, in a small neighborhood, you always kind of feel, or small community, you kind of feel like you're in the fishbowl a little bit, you know, when you're out having dinner or um, you know, having a drink at the bar or something like that. You know, you're always caught, of another ideas. How does, how does this look? Um, if someone saw me here to, tonight, what would they think? That sort of thing. Because if they saw me here tonight, and they were in front of me on Monday morning, you know how would that, how would that go? Would no. they feel like this person is, uh, you know, someone who is going to listen to my case fairly and, and hear me, or is this a person that you know was acting inappropriate at the bar last night? And this is this is who I'm going to be mm-hmm. having decide what's going to happen with my kid, you know. So you're kind of you have to be aware of that too.
0: Yeah, so, your your social aspect. You're pretty much thinking about and being smart of where you're at and what you're saying. That's a, that's
1: a... yeah. I mean, you you try to. I mean, you don't want to to ruin your life. I mean, you you have the right to a life and you have the right to, you know, to enjoy your life outside of work. But there's also that responsibility to make sure that you're not doing something. I think the the code of judicial conduct calls it brings ill repute to the, to the, to the bench or, you know, makes people disrespect the court.
0: So that's, that's actually in the,
1: it is. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. There's a whole set of rules that they govern even your private life as a judge. Wow.
0: That's crazy. I didn't even know that. So you signed up for a lot when you become a,
1: well, (laughs) whether or not you realize it or not, uh, you find out pretty quick that, yeah, there's, there's things that, and some of them are pretty you know, they chafe a little bit, because sometimes it feels like you've got a muzzle on and you can't really speak what you really think about some things or other things. But but then again, you understand the importance behind that is if if a person from the community is in front of you and they've heard some of the things that you've said, will they think that you can be fair? So not only is it important that you are fair, it's that people believe you're fair.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. even if you're being fair, people don't believe you're being fair. Then they lose respect for the system, and it's a pretty fragile system when you really think about it. Yeah. So you know the when we we talk about that. It, it's not just the the action of being fair and impartial. It is making sure people um, actually believe that to be true, and that's part of your responsibility as well.
0: Wow, that that is. That's awesome. <laughs> I just it's put, <laughs> it's, it's putting, not always awesome. But it's, it's putting works. everything in perspective for me, though, you okay. know, because I've only seen it from from my side and being able to pick your brain about what you see, you know, and giving people the opportunity to see that it's it's, it's, it's eye opening. And I'm like, okay, this this makes a lot more sense now, you know, because sure. I I don't I know now that I can never be <laughs> a judge because I don't know I don't think I could rule out my own personal beliefs from (laughs) the from the law
1: it's just i well well, i want to be clear i mean my personal beliefs and my faith and that sort of thing i mean they infuse who i am i am never separating myself from my faith but again when you ask me what the law is that's not a theological question you're not asking me to debate the, the aspects of the of the of the the benefits or the or the detractions of that law, you're asking me just simply, what is the law? And that's not a faith-based question. That's not a, you know, personal belief question. That is simply a legal question. And if you can focus on that, and, th- and that's really where I want, we've lost that aspect in our, in our society. We blur those things. We think asking what the law is is the same as asking what it should be. Mm. And that's why we have so much problems with judges being politicized because one, we started to look for judges that maybe behave that way because we want to get a certain slant on the bench this way or that way, right? right? And uh, we're pretty overt about it now and the questions we ask judges when they're being vetted to sit on the bench. And that has degraded the uh, trust and the confidence in the judiciary, which you know but how can we fix this though i mean how do how do we civics civics we have to get back to teaching civics in school we we have to understand the constitution we have to be it has to be taught we have to understand the role of the legislature the role of the of the uh, executive and the role of the the, uh, judiciary they're not the same and uh, the whole point is that they are different and You know, Scalia would when he would go visit a class, and they're usually in college or even in high school or something. He'd give appearances, and he would start his classes. He would be there to give a little speech about the Constitution or something to, to students, and he'd he'd ask the question at the beginning. You know, what part of the Constitution guarantees you your rights? And the typical answer would be the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights. And he would say, no, (laughs) wrong. Even a dictator can have a bill of rights. What protects your rights is the three co-equal branches of government with the checks and balances that they have, right? Because when the legislature oversteps, the court can check it. When the executive oversteps, the legislature can check it. That's what guarantees those rights in that bill of rights. So you can have a list. And you know, a good example of that would be Animal Farm. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but it used to be a book you know, you'd have to read in uh, high school. And uh, without getting too much into it, you know, even the animals on the farm who took over the farm from the farmers in order to protect the animals, they write a list on the side of the barn of what the rules are gonna be, but then the pigs become the new farmers. The dictators. And they, they become the, the, the dictators, the tyrants, mm-hmm. and they slowly erase the things off the barn you know, and the horse who has the longest memory of all the other animals, he's sitting there looking at the barn, he says, I remember there used to be something here, there used to be something important here, and they cart him off to the glue factory. So, I mean, books like that, civics, and understanding that the people that wrote that constitution understood what tyranny was, they understood what, what you needed to have in order to assure a government that was durable, and we're only 200 something years into this, right? So we're not very far into this right. experiment that they call the greatest experiment, probably. And it works, but it only works if you actually put it in practice the way it's designed. And we've stopped doing that, I think, in a large part, especially when we're blurring the lines between judges and legislatures and, you know, even to some extent a lot of the stuff with, the, you know, the. Uh, strong governments or strong presidents versus the legislatures and the powers and executive branch. I think we really need to get back to understanding civics understanding the different roles that our branches of government play and respecting that and and I, I think that would be I think the way to fix it
0: um do you feel like um like professors and such now are almost pushing that in, the, in the law school and Well, such. it's been
1: a long time since I've been, so I, you know, it's hard for me to say where it's coming from other than the fact that I just don't think it was a, I don't think it's a taught much anymore. Right. Like in the high school levels is where this really needs to be done. How do you, how do you end up in going into college and you, you don't understand? And I taught a college class at, at Eastern. I was filling in for a professor who was on sabbatical in criminal law. And this was a 300-level course uh, so this was, you know, of course it was, you know, for a major. Yeah. Were, these were government majors mm-hmm. in my class. And we were having to do basic things just of like, okay, how does a law get, you know, the bicameral legislature? I mean, terms like like that were having to be gone over and, and talked about. In a 300-level government class, I can understand if you're a theater major coming into a government class. Yeah. You haven't really, oh, you haven't thought about, you know, what a legislature is in a long time. but. You know, if you're in a government major and you're coming in, and you don't understand the you know the, the basic tenets of our government. Something's wrong, and that needs to start in high school. If it was in high school when I was there. I don't know what happened to it. I'm but.
0: actually uh, I was subbing as a para at the school yeah. recently, and I was with this behavioral kid, just following him around. And he's in seventh grade, and he's in civics, and that was one of his oh, good. hardest subjects. So it is it is there. Good. good. Um, at least, could should we have a little bit more? Because seventh grade to adulthood is a long, <laughs> a long time for somebody. So I mean, yeah. one more class or two more classes, uh, I think would be probably pretty good.
1: Well, I can't speak to what actually is taught because I haven't been in school in a long time. Mm-hmm. All I can tell you is the result that I see doesn't seem like we're teaching it right. <laughs> that's all I can say. And uh, that's concerning because... It really is a fragile system. The only way it survives is if it's implemented in the way it was designed to work. And uh, I see that it just seems to be, you know, it's 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 being it's being almost like manipulated. M- well, manipulated may be too strong, but it, it's being misunderstood a lot. Okay. I think is is what I would say, and that misunderstanding leads to mistrust, and the system is only runs on trust, right? I mean.
0: Yeah, I can say there's definitely a lot of mistrust out there. At least. Yeah.
1: And the, the I have of, a little bit of it myself. There's a lot of that today, and in you know the government only governs by the consent of the will of the people, and if there's no trust from the people, then eventually there's no consent of the people, and there's no consent of the people. How do you govern them? Right. So then that's the scary thing. Yeah. Very scary. Um, that's a downer. What's up? What's <laughs> up? What's, <laughs> okay, yeah. that's a happier... happier uh... <laughs> um, so how do you campaign
0: in a, in a small community? What's, what's the, the route we go down? You know, so I actually enjoy
1: the, the campaign aspect of it. Um, some things I didn't like too much. The door knocking was a little you know in a small community you're almost expected to knock on every door and because uh, everyone expects you to have that personal connection because it's not a huge community and they think if you're working hard you can do it which they're not wrong um but uh and i i enjoyed aspects of the door knocking but there's a lot of interesting things that happen at door knocking <laughs> that uh, you know <laughs> you get run off of places and you know and you you feel and i'm not a very you know, I don't want to bug people or, or you know, bother yeah. people. So you always feel like, you know, you're going onto their property and you're knocking on their door. You feel like a, you know, a door-to-door salesman when they used to do that. And so, I mean, and people, people are kind of not in the best mood to have people just walk up to the door. But, but on the other hand, a lot of people actually expect you to do that. So you're kind of trying to balance that out. Um, a lot of parades, I enjoy the parades for the most part. I think they're fun. and you know, the kids enjoy them too for the most part who so they, they participate in this. We participate as a family and things like that. That's cool, though. That's a good yeah. way to bring you together. And no, absolutely. You know, and, and uh, you know, going to different events and having the people, you know, get to meet you and understand, you know, who you are a little bit and have those those little encounters with you is important, I think, in a small community. And so you can have more one-on-one conversations. You know, uh, we, we did, I think, one debate, uh, my opponent and I, not really even a debate, but a well, I guess it's a debate uh, at, at a, at a forum through one, at one of my elections. And, and that was fine and went, went fine. But, you know, I don't know that those are as helpful as, as actually just having, you know, conversations with someone and getting to know them a little bit and seeing if there's somebody that you think would be appropriate for the job. And in a small community, you know, a campaign, you can, you can, you can have contact with a fair amount of the voters, the majority of the voters, I would say, um, if you're, participating in all the different events that are going on. And we have so many events in this this area. It's really, you don't know how much is going on until you actually try to participate in <laughs> a lot of it. <laughs> and uh, so it was really fun to, to get to, to meet folks that I wouldn't have met otherwise and uh, see things that I wouldn't have seen and participate in things that I wouldn't have participated in otherwise, um, just because they're not on your radar, you know? But when you're actually trying to go out there and meet people so they get to beat you, you're putting yourself out there more. And uh, engaging in these activities more. And, you know, we, we had a good time. It's tiring. It's exhausting because oh, you are also still, you know, working the full time job as you're in campaigning can be a full time job. And of course, uh, you know, there's always the, you know, the specter of losing your job at the end of that process, too. So that, yeah, that, that can be a little stressful. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so, how do you personally make an impact on our community?
1: How do I personally make an impact on the community? Well, or through your job, or however you want to take that. Well, I think my through my job, I I think would be pretty more, I guess, self evident as far as the impact that I have on individuals who are before me. You you know, um, and unfortunately for some of those folks, I'm I'm sure it's it's a negative impact at least in their minds in what they see, and in what happens. Um, So. I would like to think, through my job, I'm having the impact of making sure that everyone in this county feels that they have the opportunity to address and have their their disputes heard fairly and resolved in a way that they felt heard, they felt respected. And even if they lost, it wasn't because, you know, for some reason other than that's what the judge honest honest deliberation under the law came to that result. I would hope that would be the impact that I have in the county within mm. my job. But honestly, you know what, I hope my impact would be a lot more through my engagement and other activities that I do outside of my job. You yeah. know, I, uh, We're really involved in our church. Uh, we're involved in community activities. Um, I love this community. They've been wonderful to me and my family. We have absolutely fell in love with uh, Pacific County. So I would hope that uh, we're returning some of that love back to the county through the activities that we do um, and whatnot. So, I mean, that's. What I, kind I, of I activities mean, are you doing? Well, uh, I'm a member of the Knights of Columbus, and, and uh, we do a lot of uh, community events. We we make uh, for the last two years. We've done a free Thanksgiving Day dinner. Oh And, wow. and fed over 200 people each time. Uh, we uh, collect money for uh, crisis pregnancies uh, we uh, provide support for individuals and their families who are are struggling um, i participate with the elks and their uh, good works um, i teach sunday school at our church and uh we you know i've coached a little bit uh, in our in spokane uh more in spokane uh was a little league coach and things like that. So, I mean, making the time and giving back in ways such as that, uh, you know, very involved with the Kiwanis uh, scholarships and and taking care of the, the Odd Fellows Cemetery. So, so in trying to find ways where there's a need that I can fulfill and that our family can can be a positive influence again on the county
0: that's super cool and i didn't i these are like things i didn't know that you were doing and
1: well outside. you know you're not blowing a trumpet before yourself as you do your good works typically and, yeah. and i don't mean to say that 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 we're great at it or that we, we we should be blowing a trumpet or anything but you know i find a lot of satisfaction and a lot of um a lot of joy in in doing that, and I think it makes you a. I think the, the psychologist is pretty clear: the more time you spend thinking about yourself, the more miserable you are. Mm. And the more time you spend about you know thinking about others and 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 taking taking care of others and and enjoying, you know that type of work, and it is very enjoyable. I mean, it's work, but it's enjoyable most of the time. Uh, the better off you are, the more the more adjusted, well adjusted you are, and uh, so. You know, it's, it's good for the community, but it's really good for, for me, uh, and it's good for our family.
0: That's awesome. <laughs> that, that's, um, that's awesome. Uh, so I have one final question for you. Um, what do you want for
1: your kids growing up in America in today's world? <laughs> what do I want for my – I want them to have the opportunity – to live a life that is worth living and the opportunity to find love and to share that I think that's that's what I would hope the most for I
0: don't think there's anything else in the world that you really need I of that, you know, <laughs> that's a really cool, really good message. Um, well, thank you for coming. Absolutely. I'm about to listen to this one a couple of times and <laughs> probably go take a new civics class or something. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I enjoyed it and uh, you know, and, uh, it was a unique experience for me too. So thank okay.
0: you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Walk of Life podcast.